Right on, you got your Bibles? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hey, how many of you guys have gone out to Koinonia so far? You know, I'm, I'm just excited about what the Lord's doing. I, I, we have, we've had, you know, close to 50% of the adults in our church showing up, and uh, I think it's just awesome. Uh, Marcus's group took Thursday night off because uh, he ended up being sick, and we had five groups going. There were 60 adults in those five groups. And, uh, and so I encourage you, uh, this week we're meeting, okay, right? We're doing three weeks on, one week off. This is week three. Uh, we'll be meeting to discuss this passage that we're going to look at this morning on Wednesday night. And then next week on Wednesday night, it's a night of corporate prayer here at CTK, okay? So I encourage you to come join us on the, on the off week. Although we won't be meeting in individual homes, we're going to meet here uh, for an evening of prayer, okay? And so, uh, yeah, man, hook in. If you're not connected or you haven't got a phone call or haven't uh, been put in a group that you know of, uh, please speak to me this morning, okay? And we'll, we'll make sure that... We slot you in somewhere and hook you up with a group, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3. I guess I should turn there. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's, uh, it's truth, Lord. And uh, it's authoritative, it's powerful, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray this morning that it would touch our hearts, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts, Lord, that you would... Uh, remove the flesh, God, like, like a fillet knife. May it just take the flesh off, God, and bring about the work of your spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, we, we commit this time to you. We give it to you, Lord. We pray that we would have teachable spirits, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might understand who you are better, Lord, that we might understand your working in our lives better, that we might understand your working through your church better. And so, God, we just uh, we thank you for this time that we could be in your word, and we ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as we come to chapter 3 here, Paul's going to begin to talk about a little bit those who are involved in church leadership and those who qualify for church leadership. Now, you know, in, in chapter 2, I hope you had fun discussion at Koinonia. Um, but, you know, we, we talked about at the end of chapter 2 last week, we worked through just that passage where Paul said, I don't, I don't permit women to have positions of authority in a church in teaching over, over the men and teaching role over the men. And so I guess then it's important that Paul should do something, that he needs to qualify who is able to teach. Does that mean that everybody's just qualified based on their gender? And so he's going he's gonna to say no, and he's going to just talk a little bit about some of the qualities of leadership that Timothy should look for. Now, I, and as I look at this list, I mean, the first one where he's going to talk about an overseer, there's 15 things in the list. But it's not like this is meant to be a checklist, or meant that it's meant to be the requirements of a, uh, of a resume, you know, in my mind, what it is, is reinforcing that the gospel is to bring about true, real, genuine change and transformation in the heart and in the lives of those who take hold of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it especially needs to be evident in the lives of those who are called to lead the church. And so, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, he says this in verse 1, this is a trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Aspiring to the office of an overseer. Now, an overseer, that's a word uh, in the New Testament that gets interchanged for lots of different things, presbyteros. It, it can mean pastor. It can mean elder. It can mean bishop. It can mean overseer. It can mean shepherd. Okay, And the New Testament uses those words interchangeably, you know, based on maybe whatever Bible translation you might be reading or the context of what the author is speaking. And so um, the, the general idea is that word, though, overseer, an overwatcher, one who looks over the church. And Paul says, this, this is a saying that is worthy of your trust, that if anyone aspires to be an overwatcher, he desires a noble task. Now, the idea here is in this, okay? It's not pat on the back, good boy, way to go, you desire this. That, that, that's not the picture. Um, way, you know, thumbs up, you want to be a spiritual leader. Although, yes, that is good. But the idea here is, is that what you are desiring is a good and noble task. And so, Timothy, you need to look for good noble, honorable men. Because, you know, spiritual leadership, as we're going to see in some of the things, it's not about big money. It's not about title. It's not about position. It's not supposed to be about authority. Jesus said this, if anyone should desire to be first, then he should become last and be the servant of all. And so Paul is talking about something that is a noble task, but it is no less a task. It's it's hard work. It, it's, it's good to desire that. And I guess the best way to get there is through the development of, of Christian character. And so he's going to talk about character. He says this, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So quite the list here. I mean, that's just... Just the start as he gets going. When he says above reproach, that's him. And we're just going to kind of bust down some of these this morning. Uh, when he says above, above reproach, some Bible translations say he's to be blameless. Thank goodness Paul didn't say flawless. Okay? Because every one of us would be instantly disqualified from any position of serving anywhere for the kingdom of God. The idea of being above reproach just implies that a person understands that they're not perfect, but at the same time, there's nothing in areas of sin that they are, that are, that they are holding on to that is contrary to the life which God has called them to. Contrary to the life of the gospel. Uh, above reproach doesn't mean perfection, because no one is without sin. We know that. But the idea is blamelessness before the Lord. I'm not hanging on to my sin. Jesus, I bring that to you, and it's an open book. It's open, an open book, above reproach, blameless. The husband of one wife. In Greek culture, uh, you know, having a, a wife and a couple ladies on the side was kind of the deal. You know, you, you needed a wife to bear children. And, you know, you, you needed to have a, a mistress for conversation in their culture. And you needed to have a concubine for your pleasure. That was, that was the culture with which Timothy was living in, in Ephesus. And, and it was worked into a lot of the spiritual practices in Ephesus, there, the false teachings there. And so the idea here is the husband of one wife means this. The overseer has got to have the character of a one-woman man. 
Okay? Paul never said, you know, the pastor can't marry. He never said the pastor has to marry. But he says this. His love, uh, his affection, his heart should be given to one woman. His wife. It's a sober-minded. It means that his, his mind is free from intoxications. Uh, thinking clearly with clarity. He knows the value of the work. And it's not cheapened by foolish behavior. It's just clear thinking. Okay? Sober-minded. Self-controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. He says able to teach. Skilled enough in the word of God that both, both publicly and in a one-on-one setting, an elder, an overseer should be able to teach and be a student of the Bible. He says also not a drunkard. That speaks of, you know, someone who sits long at the cup and drinks in excess. Later in this letter, we're going to see Timothy. And Paul's actually going to advise Timothy. Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach, man. You got that thing going on? I don't know. Maybe the water was no good in Ephesus. Good to cure it a little bit with a little wine, whatever it was. Uh, you know, Paul doesn't demand abstinence from alcohol. But at the same time, there's a, there's a pendulum swing in the Corinthian church that Paul had to come down hard on that church in that letter because them, they were like getting drunk during the Lord's Supper and taking it to total excess. And, and, and when he says here, not a drunkard, it means this, that, you know, drunkenness is not to be a character trait of a pastor, nor of any Christ follower, actually, for that matter. You know, the, the scripture tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, not abstinence, but control, you guys. Self-control. Do not be drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the overseer, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, he says. You know, as a disciple of, of Christ, all of us, we, we are supposed to be known for what? Our love for one another. You know, so the pastor shouldn't be packing a contentious attitude, the clenched fist looking for a fight. You know, sometimes pastors don't pick fights. Sometimes someone else with a chip on their shoulder comes along and, and it starts the brouhaha. And you know, it's hard not to want to strike back. But he says, not, not, not a brawler. You know, Jesus is a good example to us when we think of this. You know, when Jesus was being persecuted and, and undergoing, you know, the cross and the suffering of the cross and they were doing all the things to him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so the pastor, not, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That means don't call it, carry the theological revolver tucked in the sock. <laughs> the doctrinal switchblade. Okay. Oh, you're Pentecostal. Oh, you're Baptist. Why don't you say hello to my little friend? <laughs> okay. That's not the idea, okay? Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Not greedy for filthy lucre, as the King James Version says. All right. Yeah, that's right. Not greedy for filthy lucre. You know, the covetous man, as we all know, because we all deal with covetousness, is never satisfied or content with anything that he has. And a man who is constantly dissatisfied will not be happy in the position or the office of an overseer. Verse 4 says this, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, it's kind of cool to consider this verse and, and just see that it's our homes where we demonstrate the gospel first. And if my house is a mess, then what's the church going to look like if I'm called to lead the church? See, the church is called what? The family of God. You know, we're, we're essentially, when you think about it, we're a family on a bigger scale than your little family at home that lives. In, we're a family. You know, I was thinking about my kids, you know, members of the Rowan family. But my kids are also members of the body of Christ. You know, I, I lead our home. God has made me their father within our house. God gave them to me. But as members of the body of Christ, my kids are, are as valuable to this family as I am. You know, Jesus Christ is as much their head as he is my head. And so, you know, that makes our family a little version of the church, I would say. You know, think of your family that your family is a little version of the church. And so the validity of ministry is first proved in the home, in, in your house. And if a man can't lead his family in, in spiritual matters, then he probably shouldn't try to lead the church, right? That's just practical wisdom. Here, what, what Paul's saying. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You know, why was the devil initially condemned? Isaiah tells us a little bit about that. Because of the pride of his heart. And the warning is, don't install someone who's recently come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ into the office of an overseer because, you know, it will be the tendency of the novice to think that if good things happen, it must be because of me. Right? Because I'm good or because my abilities or because of my skills to speak or my skills with people or my cleverness or this or that. And look, it's the, it, we all know this. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize if there's anything good in your life, it's because of God's grace. Amen? Not man's skill. If anything, if, if there's any good in my life and in your life, it's in spite of me, not because of me. It's because of the Lord. You know, I, I've been just, I've been so encouraged by what's been happening on Wednesday nights with our quantity groups. It's just been great. Uh, on Wednesday night, uh, there was 19 people at my house. We were jammed in there. The uh, crew came over from Keats Island, which was really cool and, and really fun. And, you know, here's what I love about what's happening with Koinonia is that it was birthed in prayer. Y you know, I, I love it because God birthed the idea in prayer. When you think, well, it's not rocket science. I mean, of course not. We're like getting together and we organize it a little bit and whatever. And I totally agree. But you know what? I was like too daft to think, put everybody in groups. That was the Lord that said, do that. And the first week, 65 show up. And, you know, with, a, with a, one of the groups canceled this week, because of sickness, 60 were there, and I was texting with some of the leaders afterwards, and, and Brian texted me, and he said, I think the Lord is doing a work. And I said, praise God, man. I texted him back, praise God, so thankful. You know why? Because it's God's work. And, and the warning here is, you know, recent converts, they might want to take the credit. 
know, when you're a novice, the tendency is, man, to foolishly puff up with self-confidence, and that's dangerous. Lucifer made that mistake as heaven's worship leader, and he was condemned. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You know, well thought of by outsiders. Look, does he, does he pay his bills? Does he have a good reputation with outsiders? You know, just things like that. These are characteristics that Timothy should look for and, and they should be evident to everyone. That's the idea. And so, you know, as I go through this list, there they are, 15 different things. One of them really quick. You know, I look at this list and, and as I do, I just think, okay, how does anyone ever live up to these standards? Do you think that as you go through this list? Because I do. I, I don't think there's someone, in, anyone in the position of overseer, elder, pastor that, that feels I live up to that list perfectly. You know, we're talking about human beings in positions of leadership within the church. And it's no wonder that in the last chapter, Paul says, look, you, you better pray for people in authority, man. Pray that you'll have peaceable and quiet lives. Pray for those. Church leaders, need our, they need our prayers. You know, when you think of the churches in this community, pray for those who are in leadership. Pray for the pastors. Pray for their boards. Pray for their deacons. Pray, pray for those who are in church leadership. Because it's not, you know, easy to serve. And it's not easy to put your life up against the standards here that Paul lays out. Now, now he's not, he's not going to just talk about elders. He's also going to talk about deacons. Now, deacons are... You know, the practical, get your hands dirty, servants of the church. In fact, the word deacon simply means servant. Look at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for filthy lucre. No, not greedy for dishonest gain, but it is filthy lucre in the King James. That is awesome, man. Sometimes we should hang on to some things. You know, I think in Acts chapter 6, right? That's where the... the the apostles, as the church was growing and multiplying and God was adding to their number day after day after day, the workload got too heavy. Uh, the apostles, those boys that had hung with Jesus, um, you know, their time was, there was so much demand on their time that they weren't able to give the time to the study of the word of God that it deserved. They, they weren't able to give um, prayer the time that it deserved as they were prepping to teach, and there was just practical stuff going on. And so they chose the first deacons to help. And what did, what did the deacons do at first? Man, uh, they served tables. They looked after the distribution of food. They helped with widows. And the list of the qualifications for the deacons really isn't that different from, it says this, uh, dignified, you know, it means worthy of respect, Christian character, these, a deacon should have character that is worth imitating, okay? You should say, man, I see that guy. I, I want to be like them. Not double-tongued. I read that, I think of the forked tongue of a snake. He doesn't say one thing out of one side of his mouth and then something out of the other side. Look, when, when you're involved in spiritual ministry and in a position of leadership, you got, you got to control your tongue. You have to be, you know, others have to be able to depend on your words that you say as a servant of the Lord. Not addicted to much wine, okay? Not forbidden, but clear judgment is needed. You're a servant of God. 
Not, not greedy for dishonest gain. You know, when you're involved with the physical needs of a, a ministry and of a church, you can't have sticky fingers. Verse 9 says, Speaking of the deacon, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Look at a deacon needs to practice sound doctrine. The word mystery actually speaks of um, not something that's hidden, but something that was previously hidden and has now been revealed. Okay? You think about the cross, the mystery of the cross, and those who are outside of the church and they don't know Jesus. What does the scripture say? The cross to them is foolishness. They can't understand that mystery. To them, it's mean and it's value and what the cross could do for them, it is, it's hidden. It's only understood truly by those who trust Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Because we have been given the Spirit of God. And deacons must understand Christian doctrine and then they need to hold to it with a clear conscience. You know, it's... It's not enough to choose someone who's a committed member of the church, you know, because they have good practical skills. Oh, they can add up numbers. Oh, they can do this. They can do that. Whatever it might be. And there's no one else. Let's take them. No, a deacon should be the type of person who makes their decisions based on what the word of God says. They too are a student of the word. They hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And so, you know, popularity and success and, and generosity aren't the qualifications here that he lists for deacons. A deacon's to know the word. And a deacon needs to live the word. He says in verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Tested first. Let me ask you something. Do you know where the church broom closet is? And I, I watch for deacons. I mean, although we might not officially put people in spots, I know who the servants are. Because I watch. I'm testing. And, you know, those who volunteer and teach in kids' place or serve in the nurseries or clean or, you know, straighten chairs... Look, and they prove themselves as spiritual leaders. They prove themselves as servants. They prove themselves as potential elders. He says in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Those words, their lives, you'll see little numbers in your Bible directing you down to the bottom of the page. Because that, when it says their wives, it also can be translated women. It's, two, it's kind of going in two directions here. Okay? It can refer to the deaconess. Because in the scripture, yes, we say women are not to be in authority over men, as he said in chapter 2. Not in the positions of bishops, elders, pastor, shepherd. But deaconess, yes, absolutely. There were female deacons in the book of Acts. And the wording permits Paul to actually be speaking of women or of the wives of deacons. Look, a great place to evaluate the character of a woman, he says here, is the home. Is she dignified? Is she a slanderer? Is she sober-minded? Is she faithful in all things? Verse 12. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, if you use the office of the deacon well, he says here, you, you get a good standing for yourself. Also, great confidence in, in your faith in Christ Jesus. You know, I, I think of just a couple of the first deacons that you see in the book of Acts. How about Stephen? He was a deacon. Uh, that, he was handpicked, the first group of seven. And, and, D, and Stephen was, uh, you know, became a very powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. I actually thought about this. I was thinking about this. You know, as, as Paul was writing this, I wonder if he was thinking about Stephen. I think he was. Because we know Paul's story. Before coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he stood with the men who stoned Stephen to death. He looked after their jackets and their cloaks, and his vote was counted amongst those who said, stone that man, he's a blasphemer. He was there when he martyred him, casted his vote against him. Look, did Stephen have great confidence in the faith? I think he did, man. As they stoned him, the scripture says he looked and in a vision he saw heaven open and Jesus seated on the throne. I, I'd call that confidence in his faith. He served well and God blessed him. And he paid the price with his life for serving well. Or how about Philip? He was a deacon. We call him Philip the Evangelist. Did that work in Samaria. You know, got transported. Beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Holy Spirit. Sent from one place to another on mission to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian. He served the Lord in practical ways and Philip became a very skilled witness for Christ. And so, you know, you think of Stephen, you think of Philip, dynamic, bold for Jesus, and for them, it began doing what? Serving tables. Practical ministry. And so, you know, it's, it's good. It's a serious matter to serve the church. And it, it's appropriate that I would say each of us, everyone here, you know, search your heart. Search your heart against this, this list of things that Paul lays out and to see whether, whether you're qualified or not. And, and then remember that qualifications by grace after you go through the list. Now, verse 14, he says this. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. A lot of people say that verse you know, 14 and 15 are, are the key theme verse of this letter, 1 Timothy. If you want, so it's worth circling. If you want to know, what Paul is going at and wh where, where he's going and what is the theme of a lot of the stuff that he's saying, it's right there. That we would know how to behave in the house of God. That we would understand what it looks like to have the gospel shape your life. To practically change you and then act appropriately. And look, we, we need to know what the church is, wouldn't you say? What, are we, what the heck are we doing here this morning? What, what is the purpose? You know, some are saying and claiming that we're outdated. Passe. So last year. Leaders need to know what makes the church the church. And Paul uses some great descriptions here. He says this. 
You're the household of God. Man, that's awesome. You know, sometimes we call the church the house of God. Even in my prayers, sometimes I, man, it's the house of God. But look, better than that, it is the household of God. God's church is meant to be a family. You know, we should, we should treat one another in a healthy way, the way that we should treat one another at home within our own families. You know, I was thinking about Graham and Dana welcoming that cute little baby Elise into their family, their first child. You know, that anticipation of when a baby is born in your house. Man, when someone is born again in the church, it's like welcome a new child into the family. Families and children, they need love, encouragement, you know, shelter, nutrition, training, discipline. It's been said that a church doesn't grow by addition. A church grows by nutrition. Just like a child, you know. We feed and we're nourished on our food, which is the word of God. It's our milk. It's our meat. It's our manna. It's the bread. It's honey sweet to the taste. It's our food that nourishes us and causes us to grow. We're the household of God. See, there is an architect of this house. The Lord. He's the builder. He lives here amongst his people. He provides for us. He rules here. We are the household of God. He also says the church of the living God. Some translations say the, the assembly of the living God. It's that word ecclesia. means assembly. We are the assembly of believers. Sometimes we call the church. Ecclesia means this. It means people who are called out. Hey, remember the Lord? He called Israel, his people Israel, out from the nation of Egypt to make a people for himself. The church has been called out. Called out of the world. The assembly of the living God. God's drawn us together and he dwells here. The living God. We're purchased with his blood. And he's called us with purpose. Look at what it is in verse 15. A pillar and buttress of truth. I, I just love, that's one of my favorite descriptions of the church in the New Testament. I, I mean, because it's just, I mean, wow, that's weighty, man. That is, that is strong. That the church, as the NIV says, a pillar and foundation of truth. You know, as a pillar, we hold up truth to the world. As a pillar, we put Jesus Christ on display uh, for this world to see. And they see Jesus in, in our lives. You know, as the buttress, as the foundation, the church protects truth. And the church is to make sure truth doesn't fall. And the main, the main truth to which we testify is about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so the church is, is to preserve and proclaim the testimony of Jesus. And so as the household of God, the, the assembly of the living God is the pillar and foundation of truth. You know, you just think, it's an incredible mandate we've been given, don't you think? It's incredible. And for a moment, I want you to feel the weight of it. 
consider for a moment the demands Paul places on elders. You know, think about the expectation that is asked for in the character of the deacons and in the deaconesses. You know what? Go back to last week for a minute and remember that Paul warned Timothy that God's people not blaspheme against that which God values, which is the unsaved. And he says, you, you should be praying, not, not slandering, not chirping, not talking bad, but praying evangelistically for the salvation of those who don't know Jesus. Chirp against government, against authority, against powers, rulers. No, pray. Men, quit using your hands to get what you want by force and learn to lift holy hands and pray. Women, you know, consider that what the scripture asks of you is totally counter to what the, what the culture says, but the gospel is asking something of you. Learn in quietness and in submissiveness and to not have authority over men in the church. Or, I mean, consider for a moment that just the, the mandate that we be the, the pillar and the foundation of truth. You know, you think about our society where truth is increasingly compromised. The, the biblical model for a family is being totally lost in our culture. The definition of what God has ordained as marriage, the, bound, the, the posts are being moved, the goalposts. People are lawless. Sin is abounding. All around us, there are churches that are departing from teaching the word of God. Churches that are called to be the pillar and buttress of truth have let go of the truth. They've stopped proclaiming the crucified and buried and risen and exalted, ruling and returning Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the flood waters are rising. And it's overwhelming to be said, say, what, you want me to do what, Lord? To carry these characteristics in my personality and in my character? Oh, here's the ray of hope, Timothy. Select qualified leaders. You freaking kidding me, Paul? <laughs> Who can qualify for what you ask? Who could possibly say, I'm blameless and I'm above reproach and I won't quarrel with you? And, you know, you inspect my home and you'll find perfect kids and a submissive wife. I'm sure it describes your family to a T. <laughs> Look, we go through the list and I can see the reality and understand why Paul placed every qualification there. Not for a second trying to downgrade that. But I also see that list and I know that every one of our lives inspected with a fine tooth comb, we'd be disqualified. Qualifications for godly leaders, Paul? The mystery for me and the mystery for you is this. How do I ever get there? How do I get there, Lord? Okay, I see it. It's a good goal. How do I get there? And that's why I love this last verse. Check it out. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul says this, the mystery, godliness is a mystery. You think about this list that Paul's given us, these qualifications. I'm telling you, godliness is a mystery in your life. And Paul said it himself, I understand. Here's the list. But it's a mystery how it all happens and how it all unfolds. And he begins to point us to Jesus Christ. And he says this about Jesus. He was manifest in the flesh. My friends, God became a man. Born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus. He's essentially superhuman. You know, we got the superhero culture in our world. Jesus was essentially superhuman. And by that, I mean, he was God, Titus 2.13. You know, and if Jesus was not God, why does Paul emphatically declare here, he was manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ, in all of his aspects and his character and his personality, he himself is the mystery of godliness. Who who before was hidden with God was made manifest. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Colossians, Paul said that the mystery hidden for the generations has been revealed. It's Jesus. Our Savior appeared. He took on flesh so that we could be vindicated from sin. He took on flesh in order that our sins could be taken away. You know, the the Bible says, in him there is no sin. And his appearing is because of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. He was manifest in the flesh. And and Paul says here, probably singing a church hymn from that early century, the, the first century of the church. He says he was vindicated by the Spirit. You think about the ministry of Jesus. Men reproached Jesus. They gave their disapproval. They gave their disappointment. You're not good enough. You're not what we expected. And we don't want you. Get out of here. But not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that searches the heart of men and women, searched the heart of Jesus and vindicated him. Said before God, you are justified. Before God, Jesus, you are approved righteous. Declared righteous at his baptism. The Holy Spirit descended on him in a form of a dove and the voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Declared righteous, the scripture says, by his resurrection from the dead. Look, in human flesh, as a sinless man, Jesus bore our sins in his body. He died for sin, died for our sin. He he rose again. He gained for himself and for those who place their trust in him, a justifying righteousness. 
Jesus has been vindicated by the Spirit. And he, he purchased and he ransomed our justification, our vindication. And when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the vindication that belongs to Jesus then belongs to us. Amen? Look, do you believe in Jesus? You've been justified. I've been justified. You know, it's as if I've never done anything wrong. I've been justified. All of my transgressions are gone. Because Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. And he was raised for our justification. And he did it to bring you to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. Put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit. And my friends, we have an advocate before the Father in heaven. A mediator. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Jesus having appeared once. He, he bore the sins of many He's going to appear a second time, my friends. And it won't be to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. Manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Paul says he, he was seen by the angels. The, the angels have seen him. You know, after his baptism, Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that as he was tempted and withstood the temptation from Satan... The angels attended to him and they looked after his needs. They witnessed the temptation of Satan in the desert. And those angels watched as Jesus acted righteously before God in the face of temptation. Without sin. With wonder and awe, I think. You know, the host of heaven watched while the drama of the ages uh, unfolded on the earth in Jerusalem at the time of his crucifixion. God in human flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, and yet, yet taking on the sins of, of, of mankind, bearing the wrath of God and purchasing with his blood men, died and buried and proved righteous and raised by the Spirit. Why? So that through the church, the manifold God, wisdom of God may, might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Man, God is using us to prove to the angelic hosts the power of salvation and the power of his righteousness. It, it says, manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, Paul says. Ephesians 2.17 says, And he came and preached peace to you when you were far off. And he, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You know, in the scriptures, Jesus only marveled at the faith of two people, as you know very well. Two people. And they weren't the ones that fit into the little box of religious society and what they thought and what the Jewish culture and people thought. And both of them were Gentiles. The Roman centurion said to Jesus, look man, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house, man. I understand authority. Say the word. My servant will be healed. 
the woman, the Syrian Phoenician woman who, who with the demon-possessed daughter came to him and just said, Lord, help me. And, and she believed God. And Jesus marveled at those two people and their, their faith. You know, at the time, the Jews considered Gentiles just to be fodder for hell, man, fuel for the fire. But Jesus commended the faith of those two. And look, you know, I, I, I would say to you, man, I don't feel like I've, I fit into the qualifications of those who are called to leadership, but I would say this, take heart. Because what God marvels at is those who come to him in faith. See, what the angels came to know by seeing with their eyes, the world is going to come to know by proclamation. Proclaimed among the nations. The manifest, vindicated, seen by angels, Jesus. Paul says he, he was taken up into glory. See, his reception in heaven is an answer, you know, I guess, in a sense, to the reception he received on earth. He was believed on. And he was received into heaven. Exalted in glory. Look, you know, I would say this. Here in this chapter, Paul shares with Timothy and with us all the wonderful character traits of a Christian who's growing in godliness. But look, in so many ways, the mystery of how this is brought about in your life is that a mystery. You know, when we look at Jesus, we see the, the perfect fulfillment of what Paul described. I, I mean, just slot Jesus there and put the 15 down once on our hands for perfect fulfillment of what Paul is talking about. And I would say this the key to being transformed into that same character is to focus your life on the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Center your life on Jesus. Oh, well, I want, I want religion and church attendance and these different things to build these characters. I'll discipline myself. And I'll build these character traits into my life. My friends, it's a mystery how it's produced. It's called the mystery of godliness. It happens when you pursue Jesus. He transforms you. That's what the gospel does. That's why I'm not the same. And that's why you're not the same. The mystery of godliness, you know, and it's, it's very simple. It's not about how you work, how hard you work at the qualifications. It, you know, it's... It's, it's about learning to follow Jesus. It's about being trained by the word of God and learning to be sensitive to the spirit of God. It's about resting in the fact that Jesus lives forever to intercede for you. He purchased you. You're always on his mind. And when you set your heart to follow him, he will lead you on the path of righteousness. For his name's sake. Amen.